Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership audio engineer and producer Gary Platt. Beginning in the late 1970s at Cincinnati's fifth floor recording studios, he worked with some of Funk's top artists, including Bootsy Collins, the Ohio Players, Jenny Morrison, Midnight Star, Data and Son, and Slave. He went on to handle sessions for Spyro Gyra, Bon Jovi, Rick Wakeman, Eric Sermon, New Edition, Shaquille O'Neal, and others. Gary, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Where are you today? I'm in uh, Walnut Creek. That's where I live. I, um, I, I, I have a studio here and I, I still uh, master now for uh, CBS uh, and Viacom and uh, the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> All right. So that's the Bay Area. And uh, for those who don't know, lovely yeah, up there. Yeah, San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been up in that part of the country? Oh, my. 20 years now. Yeah, I've been here a long time. Actually, it's been longer than that, as I think about it. Yeah, I love that area. It's been a while since I've gotten up there from Los Angeles originally. So California is my Thanks. my stomping grounds. Um, so glad you could join the show. been looking forward to talking about some of your studio experiences. So thank you. Sure. Gary, um, 
How were you first drawn to music and engineering? How'd you fall into that? Or was it a, a you know, academic trail that you had? How did you get there? Well, actually, uh, ever since I was a little kid, I was into recordings. The first thing that I remember, that, and I have a picture of it, it's very strange, my dad watching a record go around. And uh, it just blew my mind, you know, wow. And uh, I remember as, as time went on, the first thing I bought with my own money was a, was a small tape recorder. And I always was just fascinated by tape machines and the fact that you could take uh, scotch tape and rust from your toilet and make music on it. Uh, so uh, that's where I came from. And then uh, I, had a, I had a band of like a 12 piece uh, horn band when I was in high school. And uh, then I went, for, went to college for music and uh, trombone. And, uh, and when I was there, I, became, I walked in the first day and I said, hey, I want to be a recording engineer at uh, the school of music. And they just about fell on their knees. They were looking for somebody, apparently, who would do this. So I, I was able to do that. I did that for four, four years while I was at How You. And during that time, I just, you know, it just spent a lot of time really thinking about it and doing it. And finally, when I got out of that, uh, I wound up in a little place called Appalachia Sound. And that's in Chillicothe, Ohio. Uh, I, I worked there for 75 bucks a week. I was there to do jingles produce jingles anyway i wasn't that great a jingle writer to be honest and uh and i wound up uh being the head chief engineer at that little studio and um oddly uh that little studio we we had somebody come uh there to record and they recorded and then uh their their manager uh had uh money from something and he wanted to uh, he thought starting a school would be a great idea. So uh, myself, uh, Joe Waters, and uh, uh, man, I forgot his name. Sorry. Uh, he's going to hate me for that. Uh, John Bishop, that was his name. Uh, we got together and we started something called uh, the Recording Workshop. And the Recording Workshop is still in existence today. And it's doing great, I guess. Um, but that's where I got my first school experience and my first re real multi-track recording experience. Uh, and then, and then the funny thing was, um, I was there and, uh, there was another guy there named John Phelps and, uh, he and I actually are co-founders of uh, a, a school called Full Sail, which is now a university. Um, I left in 1996 and from then on, they didn't call me a co-founder. I, I, I don't understand how that changed, but it changed. So uh, we're doing that. And, uh, and then the funny thing happened was I decided to take a job uh, in Cincinnati at Fifth Floor. And I spent some time with uh, the owner, Rich Goldman. And, and I swear to God, I got that job by not talking. I mean, you know, it's funny. We, we went out for drinks or something. And I remember saying about three words. And, uh, and then he called me later and said, you're hired. Yeah. Must have been because I listened. <laughs> so weird, right? That's important in audio engineers. Yeah, life. well, <laughs> I just listened. And he told me everything about the studio and all that. Well, that's kind of cool. And then I was on a Thursday. And then, and then on a Sunday night, he calls me and says, oh, tomorrow we have the Ohio players coming in. <laughs> what? Okay, great. So next what, what year know, was that about? Oh, it must have been 1978, somewhere in there. 
And uh, so I said, okay, let's go. And the Ohio players were, uh, were really my first label act. Now, here's a very strange coincidence. Uh, on August, in August of this uh, year, 20, there's a big thing called the uh, Gospel Superfest. And they put it on in Columbus, Ohio. Now, I haven't seen the Ohio players for, you know, 30, 40 years. <laughs> Most of them are dead. But there's a couple guys that live, and they're pretty, you know, they're pretty smart guys. So he had, a, so there's a guy named Bobby Curra, and he was uh, in the Ohio Players, and he called me up last month and said, "Hey, I need an A1 on a video truck for a big show I'm doing. Would you do it?" And I couldn't believe he remembered me in the first place, and and I thought this is bizarre again, right? Wow, this is cool. What a crazy world uh and it shows you that your former connections do add up i suppose as time goes on and, and they pay off you know in a weird way but this guy's a great guy and and we we hit it off and i'm going to be going out there to do uh do the mix for the video they're doing a, like a big eight camera shoot and all that kind of stuff so i'll be doing the audio for that uh, oh, but it's funny how, uh, right? You know, you're, you're the first band I ever worked with. I'm going to work with one of them uh, coming up uh, here in the next month. So that was kind of an interesting thing how how life goes, you know. Yeah, circular. What uh, what was your uh, you know genre of choice musically back then? Were you into oh. funk and soul, or were you more rock guy, or what? I really liked Chicago at that time. Uh, I like that. I like the rock and the horn sound. Of course, I'm a trombone player, so. Uh, and i really loved chicago i was really into it uh and and that was pretty cool because uh while i'd never worked with chicago i did uh, work with bill champlin however later on um i produced a show and an album with him but um before this is pre uh bill champlin of course so i was really in chicago it's so funny because all my friends would say who the hell are these people who is who is slave? You know, and and I would say, well, you know, you got to be in the world a little bit there. And they would always chide me for not doing rock records. They wanted me to do rock, but I was in a place where the funk music was shaken, and it was everything going on. And and that truly is interesting because you, you know my career was shaped by. Uh, a little bit of serendipity uh, and, and yeah, take talent and all that. But, you know, it's, you have to kind of like, if you're going to go fishing, you got to go to a fishing hole where there's fish. <laughs> so I wound up in a nice fishing hole, if you will. And, and I was so, so grateful to be able to work with, uh, gosh, everybody from, uh, well, the Ohio players first and Roger Troutman. And uh, I actually had a chance to work with Prince for about a week there at fifth floor um that's an interesting story i'll tell you sometimes you like um uh bootsy collins i even have a dog named after bootsy and it's funny because i called bootsy up this is like two years ago I said hey boots so what's going on uh, can i name my dog after you and you'll be offended and I goes, oh no, no and i was like he's such a great guy he's the funniest guy and a greatest attitude that guy has but um yeah, so I did all these fabulous, uh, you know, funk records, man. And I just, I just can't get over it. I was so lucky, um, really, uh, to have been in that scene. And, and oddly, I kind of stayed in that scene. When I left Fifth Floor, I wound up doing uh, uh, Shaq O'Neal. He had three platinum records. Uh, he showed up at my office, uh, and he was only 22 in Florida. <laughs> and he says, uh, 
Hey girl, I'm doing uh, I got to do a record with uh, Jive Records, man. And I was like, huh? <laughs> Why are you here? And he said, well, man, you, man, I'm supposed to be talking to, so I won't talk to him about that. So we got together and we did a number of records together. That was fun. He was fantastic. And uh, that's kind of where I met uh, Eric Sermon uh, because we brought Eric Sermon in and he did a couple of songs. And I wound up doing some more work for Eric um, on another record too. So I was kind of fun. Uh, he was from EPMD. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, he's a great guy. They're all great guys, these people. Everybody I've worked with, um, pretty much, uh, it's been pretty good. I only had. Uh, I only had one session that I couldn't do anymore, and that was with Midnight Star. And it was on uh, No Parking on the dance floor. They didn't put my name on the record, and I'll tell you why. Um, I uh, this is this is kind of you know when R- Reggie Calloway and his brother were producing, which is cool. He's great guys, and it's funny because I've talked to Reggie's uh, in the last year. It was very fun, um, but those guys were funny. They stood behind me, and they were we were going to. Uh, we had one kick drum we had to push in. So it'd be like, you know, boom, 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 punch, boom, out, jump, jump. You know? So I'm just, boom, one hit, one hit. And uh, the, uh, so we, we did this one hit, boom, yeah, punch in, punch out. And we did it for 10 hours. One punch in, mm-hmm. one kick drum for 10 hours. And we didn't get it that day. <laughs> so we did it the next day. And the next day, I I just said I can't do this anymore, man. <laughs> I was like breaking down, right? I said I can't do this anymore, man. I can't do this because what happened was they got to it and, and they got the one, and he said, uh, "Sound? What do you think?" And he said, "Sounds perfect." And and his brother said, "Well, yeah, I think it sounds perfect." He said, "Well, listen again. Maybe it's too perfect." So they, <laughs> they listened again, and it was too perfect. Right. So they wanted to do it again. And I said there, I said, there, I said, guys, so this kick drum is too perfect. You really want me to race this? You know, there's no digital anywhere. Right. It's not like you just move it <laughs> like you do today. And we did. But what happened in the process of doing this was we wore the tape out in that spot. So you'd hear because the tape was worn out. Oh my God. So they had to re-record the whole song again. Well, specifically the no parking on the dance floor track? No, not that track. It was a different track. No, different track. But you got to know in those days, we recorded these songs two, three, four times. And the way and the reason was kind of cool. Because they would take the tracks over to a, a local club, like in Covington or you know in Cincinnati, and they'd have these cut these these cuts. And remember, like I think Boomer Esiason was big then in Cincinnati. He had the Boom Boom Room or something, and, and they'd play it. The now, shuffle, they, years of the Icky Shuffle, I think. Remember that? Yeah, Icky, yeah, 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 all that stuff, right? Yeah. So they they take the tracks over to one of those places, and they'd play it. Now, if they didn't get the reaction they liked. They'd bring it back and re-record the whole thing, maybe in a different key, different tempo, maybe change the chorus. Then they'd take it back over there and they'd play it again. They kept doing this until they knew it was going to hit the dance floor. And, and that's one of the secrets, I think, to that whole, area, that whole group of people who came out of that area. 
because they tested everything out on people from the area. And this is the Midwest, right? So if you can get the Midwest rocking with your music, well, you got some going. So that's what pretty much everybody did. Uh, they'd come over and, you know, we'd, we'd do a mix, get it right. And they'd come back and go, mm, you know, people didn't like this part. We didn't get the response we wanted on this part. So we would uh, re-record it. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, what, um, what did you, uh, what were you like when you first started working with say the Ohio players and how did your skills evolve for capturing funk music, uh, as, as time went on? Yeah. Well, um, Hmm. A lot of people think, um, I don't know that, that, I don't know that I have all that much to do with it in a way because folk sound is tight and we had tight drum booths, tight recording spaces. Uh, and, and, and that's what it was about. And, and, and the whole vibe, you know, around the studio was really good, really good. Um, but I have to tell you a funny thing. I think technically there is something that, that had a, had a, had an impact, which, probably nobody thinks about um first of all we never cut at 30 ips we always cut at 15 and the reason was that 15 had a better low end um it wasn't the emphasis wasn't on trying to get that pristine beautiful high end it was on low end you know getting that, that you know getting the hit right um so so we always cut at 15 the other thing we did was we used to cut through this dbx unit and DBX is a funny thing. What it does is a noise reduction system for tape. And what it does is it will take the sound that you have and it will, when it comes in, it will compress it to exactly half its dynamic range. Okay. So then what they do is they take that signal which is only half the dynamic range, and they raise it up to the tape when it goes to tape. So then when it comes back off the tape, what happens is they bring that back down from the tape. Well, all the noise, which is where my face is, that's getting lower and lower and lower as well. And they bring it right back down to this original, original threshold. And then they, instead of compressing it, they expand it. So goes right back to where it should be for playback. So that's how you have noise reduction in the analog world. Well, truthfully, it was kind of weird that the DBX system compressed and expanded the low frequency because there's no noise in the low frequency, right? So they could have left that alone. And ultimately, you've heard of the dip, uh, uh, sorry, Dolby encoder and, and player. Well, they, the difference, the big differences with Dolby and with DBX was that DBX compressed the whole signal and Dolby from about 80 hertz up uh, or 80 hertz down, uh, there was no compression because there's no noise down there. Um, so it had an effect on the sound. It had a, a punchy, dry effect on that sound and i think that's why people have a hard time getting that sound 
because it might need to go through. Now, I'm going to do some experimenting with that because I want to find out. But this is something I finally kind of come to over the years that to get that funk sound, what we might have to really do is to go through DBX unit and go into digital. It's all right. Play back off digital, probably make it sound different. <laughs> so, you know, that's where it is. But I think the DBX encoding, that had a little bit of a, a sonic thing about it that, that the funk stuff has. Tight, super tight. Interesting. I know I'm a long-winded guy, aren't I? No, I, I we want details like that. That's and I'm a teacher, so I'm always trying to teach with my hands. You know? Just, just forgive me if I sort of interrupt you from time to time because no, I have a lot of questions. Um, what, do you remember what the first record was that you kept with your helpers? Yeah, well, I think it was every everybody up. Okay, so that was their first Arista and only Arista record. Yeah, I yeah, think that was it. Um, I did about four with them but three or four but i i can't remember which, which one was the first one um uh, they had a had a had a bullhorn and a girl and that's that one yeah 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 well so for me you know i'm a funk fan from early 70s on nice. and i saw your name on so many liner notes you know i was oh. like wow this guy is he's doing a lot of these you know who's this guy so that's why uh, it's a kick to uh, meet you and talk with you about this stuff for sure um, I've heard that, um, Bootsy from stories by like Jim Vitti in Detroit, um, you know, that, uh, he was really, his sound was something in the studio. So what were your experiences with Bootsy, uh, sonically? Well, I think, look, I had nobody fun, more fun than Bootsy Collins in the studio. He's got that great vibe. He's no negativity. And, you know, if things get weird, he, he's really good about it figuring it out you know when people get you know a little bit uh funny uh, he is he's he's a psychologist that guy i swear to god um thing about bootsy is uh <laughs> he he would this is a crazy story i'm gonna tell you this is, this is insane remember i told you we used dbx okay i couldn't be there for a session so another person was there and they punched in without the dbx so get this they do all these vocals right and they kept this line and didn't keep that line and they kept this line and they kept that line and didn't and then redid this line and oh my god you know so now what happens when i go back i'm like this is strange what is going on here uh i explained and the, and the assistant says to me oh i think they we punched those in without the dbx and i said well <laughs> we're gonna make a little chart here okay and you're gonna sit over there and turn that sucker on and off for me <laughs> so so i had an assistant while we were mixing turning it on the dbx turning off the dbx turning on the dbx off the dbx uh so that it sounded okay uh and it was the lead vocal track so <laughs> You know, it, it was like, God, what a mess that was. But um, Boots Boots liked to add a lot of stuff. Um, I I felt at times maybe he he was going overboard. But um, but you know, how do you how do you criticize something that somebody like that is so is so prolific and so successful? Um, obviously, he knows something that I don't always know. But uh, yeah, he he uh, 
he was a great guy and he 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 liked to use every single track yeah and lots of effects right yeah i mean if we could punch in between the snare drums i'm thinking he would <laughs> but you know it's all good fun the one giveth was the first record you worked on with him was that i don't know can't remember that necessarily but it might have been the thing about bootsy's bass that you <laughs> people i don't think anybody's really prepared for him so he's got like six outputs so uh or more there may be more there may be <laughs> maybe seven i mean he may or eight because he's thinking about a guy he's got uh four strings at least if not six so that's outputs i was yeah now put on every string and he would have an effects output and a regular output that was the mix of all of them together. So it's kind of cool. I mean, in a mix, you could actually, if you put them all on separate tracks, which you, you can't do because in 24 track, there's just not enough tracks, you know, now you could today, but if you put all six of those out there and uh, panned them across a little bit, it might be kind of interesting, right? But um we actually just mixed it down to uh, either a stereo track or a mono track, and the whole funk thing was simple. You know, you had the uh, you had the Moog bass, which was always gone, and you uh, and you had the uh, regular bass, and the regular bass was kind of a kind of a thing where you had a a lot of top, you know, a lot of top around three K, two K, you know, boink, yeah, and uh, and then you'd have kind of a spot that was. Not not as loud, and that would be where the Moog fit, you know, your Moog bass fit. So you, what I always did was carve out a little spot and then put the low end of the bass in so that when you hit it with boom, you know, you could really feel it and get it. But the Moog always fit in that mid-bass area, maybe low end and mid-bass sort of area, and, and um, that really worked well. I mean, every song is different but you know some songs are driven by the bass some are driven by the the kick drum a lot of the funk stuff is driven by the, the low end the 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 bass you know and the moment and the and the, and the bass not so much kick drum. Do, do you have Today, a, a lot of kick drum. do you happen to recall the god mama project that bootsy produced oh here's the funny thing okay so uh i'm sure i'm saying things i shouldn't say because that's me Okay, I'll just tell you whatever. I think. Well, this is called truth and rhythm for a reason. Yeah, You're supposed yeah, to speak your truth. So, sure. Well, this is 25 years later, so yeah. uh, or more. <laughs> 25 years. I'm like, that's just probably 40. Um, well, actually, <laughs> uh, you know, he and he and Clinton would come in, and they would do multiple records. So you get a you get a you get a budget. And you make uh, Brides Funkenstein and God Mama and Bootsy Collins and another record. You do all those tracks on one budget. And then you, uh, you, you know, pretty much for the rest of it, then they would, mm, you know, they would do well. <laughs> that sounds like economically smart. Yeah, they got their advances, you know, when they wouldn't necessarily have to spend it on uh, too much on the, on the stuff. So we would have like a lot of tracks. I mean, and, and it really was because they had so much material. It was crazy. And they would they would be like, OK, 
we're going to lay this track down. Okay. Going to lay this other track down. Did a lot of tracks, you know, to 24. And then they'd have a lot of reels. And we would take those reels and, um, and they would use some tracks for this project and some tracks for another project. And, uh, you know, that really worked well because you got everybody there. Uh, so you might as well get it done, you know. And, uh, and that's how they did a number of those things. I thought it was really cool. That's like, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's smart. Um, even if a little, you know. But hey, uh, welcome to know. the whole world. Yeah, you know, got to be resourceful. Everybody wants, yeah, everybody wants to be a drug dealer so they can be Jay Z. <laughs> did did what was your impression of George Clinton? George Clinton's a great guy. He's a very nice guy. I uh, I didn't work a tremendous amount of time with him. I worked with him a little bit, and uh, he was very kind, very good, very happy. Um, wow talented as hell you know he was he was something now the most talented funk guy i don't know he's funk but it would be prince because prince was crazy amazing well, what's that what's, a, what's a prince story you got it you got to tell me that um i'm at fifth floor my uh my uh the guy who owns the uh the place calls me at three o'clock in the morning he says hey uh Somebody is down at the studio. Uh, this is in February. It was snowing, a big snowstorm. Can you go down there and see what they're doing? You know, I don't get this. Okay. So go down there. And apparently it's Prince's entourage. And the snowstorm had snowed out part of a, a, a part of the tour coming up. So Prince wanted to record he had heard about this one so he showed up uh with his entourage and his bus and everything and they wanted to record so i said okay i got there and i set everything up you know we had mic center and all that and um so i'm getting it going and finally it's about mm, 10 o'clock in the morning now uh, i got things everything's ready it's good guy comes this is you ready i said oh, yeah, we're all good and uh and then i checked the mic and oh that's not good. So I checked something and I don't like it. So I went back out and I was, remember, I plugging this into number 15. I don't know why I remember that. I'm plugging this into 15. Now somebody playing the piano and I'm sitting there right next to the piano, plugging something <laughs> and, and, and I get kicked over. <laughs> That's all I can say. And then I bap, you know, and I kind of laughed, you know, and he said, I thought you said it'd be ready. I said, nice to meet you too. And, and I said, don't worry, man, it's all good. And I plugged and I said, it's all you gotta do. We're good. So that's how I got started off with him. And uh, but he was cool. He was just uh he was cool, he just did his thing and he was very intense. He was manic because we didn't go home for five days. <laughs> and that's where we wound up um and I don't I don't have credit on this album, is the uh glamorous life we did glamorous life there Sheila was there or no was she oh yeah she was there she came she showed up this is right at the time when you probably nobody is going to remember this but there are the bouncers who beat up somebody at a club and those guys were there <laughs> i recognized them from the picture in the papers and and, and then she showed up she was in a big mink thing in a big mink coat and it was beautiful you know she was looking great and um, anyway, the most exciting thing that I so wish that I so wish, you know, we, we had a video that was surreptitious <laughs> because I, I would love to have had a video uh, of this point in the session where uh, Prince sits down on the drums and Sheila E is on her percussion. 
and they just jammed, you know, just jammed. And it was super good. It was so exciting. And uh, I don't know, it might have wound up on something because, you know, he has so much material. And he did another thing that was really cool. It's somewhere in the vault, I'm sure. He took a Tascam. He just gotten a Tascam four track, you know, a cassette. So he took the cassette of the information and he built the song around so the song was running and he was he we'd insert he'd insert these little parts you know the desk i'm 2904 uh and and the music would roll and it was now push play you know it was so it was so creative and so much fun i never heard it anywhere else i mean we we did a lot of there was a lot of material recorded there but um the only one that i know of uh that was you know really of any note was the the glamorous live track and having her come up and do the rest of it. So that was like 1983? Yep, 84, 83, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. The guy wrote a book, uh, uh, Dwayne Taldo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's that story's in there. It's kind of funny. Yeah, Dwayne, he's been on the show. Great guy. Of all the characters that you crossed paths with, would you say that Prince was, you know, where was he musically compared to like some of these other people that you dealt with? Oh, I don't know. You know, up there in Space Lab somewhere. I mean, everybody else is on Earth and he's on Space Lab. That's how much difference it is. The guy's a genius. I never met anybody. Well, there's only one other guy I'll mention. He's not a funk guy, but that's Adrian Balloon. He has... He's got the same kind of talent, man. That guy can do anything. Uh, but Prince was amazing. I was amazed. <laughs> so, you know, I have a music degree for Evanson. I get it. You know, I know what he's doing. And I did he, did he cut much vocally uh, or just instrumental stuff? 99% was instrumental with the exception of uh, some of the stuff I think that she would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to go home at some point and sleep. So there may be some other things, but you know, when he's working, he's in a manic mode. I just, you know, roll. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like everybody who's a musician. I used to have a guy who come in, <laughs> in the, in the beginning of the session, he, he would just be like, God, you're the greatest guy on earth. You know, <laughs> tell me how much I love me. And then, uh, pump you up or what? Well, no, he had a, he'd like have a rock of cocaine, like uh-huh. not, not like coke where he cut it, you know, it's really he's a rock, he's a rock. <laughs> you know, when he puts it down, he'd do that. Were, were substances involved in most of these sessions or just, a- yeah, I think it was a common thing in all, uh, let's just say all recording sessions. Otherwise you wouldn't have a, a mirror at the end of the console. I swear to God, every console in LA and New York, for that matter, uh, you'd have a um, a little a little mirror at the end of the console, and that's where the you know that's where the coke was done. Now, at Fifth Floor, we had a panel that was in the um, DBX rack, and you know you'd look at that panel, you'd see all these little <laughs> space marks on it. How'd I get like that? Well, that was our our coke plate, so we, we would hand that around. But one of the things that I didn't do was coke i didn't do any of those drugs i and i think it's one of the reasons that they hired me uh because i i know satch 
from the Ohio Paris said to me one time, man, it's good to have at least somebody knows how to drive this train. <laughs> it's sober. And I, I said, laugh, you know, because uh, it was kind of true. You know, the kind of way it went was uh, you'd start out and there'd be, uh, you know, everybody smoking pot and they're making these tracks and they're making these tracks. And, tracks. and then about 2 a.m. maybe, <laughs> uh, somebody, you know, the producer or somebody would show up with the, the Coke and then they'd be already coked up and they'd say, oh, these tracks are horrible. Let's not use these tracks. Okay. So then everybody get coked up and we'd do tracks and we'd do them all night long and then I'd make a rough mix. And uh, everything would sound terrible to the next to the next day, and we'd do it again. <laughs> and it's not quite that ugly as it sounds because it wasn't. It's 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 much more fun than that. But it was like it's kind of what we did, you know, for a number of weeks. Then finally, everybody gets kind of serious, and we get the tracks done. But I think there's that period of creativity that goes on where it's like everybody's doing their thing. They're trying things out. We're trying to cut songs together and figure out what's the next, what's the cool thing to put down. And, and I think that there's a whole period of that. And then there's a period of, uh, this is like every recording session. There's a period of, hmm, got to get serious. Let's get this done. So, so we, we wind up taking the ideas and all things. And we get that thing done, you know, and that's, that's kind of how it works. But I, I just didn't, um, I didn't do anything. I didn't do any Coke or anything. And I, I had a funny thing with my kids. Uh, I sat them down when they were 12 and 13 and I said to them in the living room floor with their mom and I said, so does dad uh, smoke pot? And they looked at me kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah okay dad smokes pot <laughs> and i said you're right i do and i said do you know why i don't do coke and heroin and all that other kind of stuff oh because you'll get arrested he said. he said and i said nope mom is gonna be very angry no that's not why either well it's against the law mm, not really either and they're like what the hell I said, well, there's only one reason I haven't done it. Because I'm afraid I'll like it. And they go, well, that's the weirdest thing I ever heard in my life. So that was kind of a, an epiphany for them because I had all the wrong reasons. I, I mean, all the, all the right reasons I wasn't even thinking about. But the right reason was that I was just afraid I'd really like it. And and the thing goes for Coke, too, because when I was in the studio, there's Coke everywhere. Jesus, man, everybody's doing Coke. And I actually didn't do it only because I, I first of all, I, I I was afraid I'd like it. And then I found out I didn't like it. Uh, and I tried it when I, I when I was had the flu. <laughs> so stupid. Right. Uh, and I didn't like it. It just didn't work for me. So I was kind of lucky with that. But save the problem save is a lot of money. Yeah, well, you know, they you know people get their advances, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the um, you know, the how players probably they had a half a million bucks to to play with. So, you know, Did any of the razor blades uh, for Coke get used to edit any tape? No, nah, that was over there, and and plus, you know, I was always pulling out a new blade, man. You know, I mean, you know, I'd do three edits and I'd get another new blade because they they get. It's funky. I don't want a funky blade on some of these masters. You know? <laughs> oh, sorry, man. It was dull. That's why they need you sober. Yeah. 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 I was, I was, I was only sober. I, yeah. I didn't even smoke pot till I was 28. So 
Wow. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much. Thank you.